1: Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 124 of the Professional Book Nerds Podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Jill. Adam is um, still in New York right now as I'm recording this um, for Book Expo America, but he should be back next week. So you get my lovely voice on this lovely Monday. Um, for today's episode, we have an interview with Marcus Sedgwick that we did at um, Cuyahoga County Public Library back in in um about a month ago when he was on tour for his book saint death um which is a incredibly um timely novel that that tackles a lot of very relevant topics including drugs gangs and border relationships between the united states and mexico which is interesting because marcus is actually british he's not from the united states um so that was a lot of what we discussed was the reason he chose that for a setting for his book and how he did the research for um, these these particular uh, themes within St. Death. Um, he is an award-winning writer, illustrator. He has a history of being a musician. Um, he has won the Prince Award for Excellence in Young Adult Literature for Midwinter Blood back in 2014. He's got he's got some pretty sweet accolades going on for him. So it was a really good discussion. And um, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Professional Book Nerds podcast. Um, as always, as I, of course, start to sign off and then remember, <laughs> no, there's other things to talk about. Um, as always, if you would like to reach out to Adam or myself, you can find us on Twitter at Pro Book Nerds. Or you can email us directly at professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com. Please, if you have um, any comments related to the podcast or if you want to um, get book recommendations from us, please feel free to, to reach out and let us know what, what you have been reading or what your favorite books are. And we'll be happy to pass along some recommendations for new books. If you are any of our new listeners who've heard about the podcast um, at BEA, welcome. We have a big backlog of interviews just like this, and also book recommendations, and we have a lot of genre-themed episodes, so feel free to go um, back through our, our our catalog of episodes to see if you can find something that sounds good. So, okay, that I think is everything. Yeah, okay. So, right, so enjoy this episode, this interview with Marcus Sedgwick, and um, Adam should be back for our episode on Thursday, so you won't have to listen to my sick, um, stuffy voice anymore. <laughs> All right. Bye. Hi, everyone. This is Jill from the Professional Book Nerds Podcast, and I am here with author Marcus Sedgwick, who is an award-winning writer, illustrator, and musician. His book, Midwinter Blood, won the 2014 Prince Award for Excellence in Young Adult Literature, and his latest novel, Saint Death, has already received positive reviews from the likes of the New York Times, Kirkus, Booklist, and numerous other publications. Marcus, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast.
2: My pleasure. Thank you for having me.
1: So would you mind kicking us off by giving our listeners an introduction to saint Death?
2: Yeah, this uh, book is uh, several different things, but the main thing that you will see about this book is that it's a thriller. It's set on the uh, Mexican-American border in uh, the city of Juarez and a little township just up to the northwest of Juarez called Anapra. And the book is about uh, predominantly about two young men uh, who have grown up as very good friends, almost as brothers, but they're not brothers. Um, But at the point at which the book starts, uh, Arturo, who's the protagonist of the book, he hasn't seen his friend Faustino in over a year. Uh, Faustino's completely dropped out of his life and he doesn't know why even really. And then at the start of the book, uh, Faustino turns up again and he, he explains to Arturo that he's done something stupid and that he's in trouble. Um, He explains that he started working for one of the gangs in Juarez and that he has borrowed, and I mean that in inverted (laughs) commas, a thousand US dollars from his boss. And he thought he had a couple of weeks to pay it back and it's a trap and he only has like 24 hours to get it back. And if he doesn't get it back in time, uh, then that is the end of Faustino. And he's come to Arturo because Arturo is an expert at a card game called Calavera that they play in the city and he says it's a high stakes game tonight in the city. You have to go into this game and you have to win me a (laughs) thousand dollars. That's the No pressure. Yeah. Yeah. And so, as I say, on the surface, what you see is kind of a thriller, but it's a book that's trying to ask uh, lots of questions, both on um, a personal, emotional level about sacrifice and what we're prepared to do for someone else. Um, and also on a kind of more political level about things to do with borders and fences and life either side of those things.
1: Yeah, I actually wanted to ask you about that. Um, You know, it's a it's an incredibly timely novel because of a lot of of the the themes and the topics that are um, covered in the book. So why do you think it's important for young adult readers to be exposed to these ideas and um, themes, especially this point in our
2: history. Yeah well um, we are living in some uh, fairly critical times at the moment I think and um, I you know my books I generally hope they appeal from anyone from the age of 14 perhaps even younger with the right reader up to adult readers but in this case it is a book particularly I hope that um, that the teenage reader will find something in and that's because you know, the teenage experience is really a very interesting one. It can be a very tough one. Lots of us have quite a tough time going through the teenage years and then we become an adult and we say, right, I don't want anything to do with that anymore. I'm never going to think about it ever again. Mm-hmm. Um, forgetting that what that means, of course, is you know you're neglecting how you became the adult that you have become because, as we call it, it's a very formative period. And one of the things I think that's interesting about that in political terms is that Lots of adults have made up their mind about something and then they basically do not change their mind on that, whatever that subject matter might be. Maybe you're talking about the death penalty or a subject like abortion or, you know, adults very rarely change their mind about something. And yet when you're a teenager, you're still in that mode where you're finding out about the world and you're deciding what you think about things. And uh, I think it's interesting because I think a lot of the time, you know, we give um, and I don't know if it's the same in the States as it is in Britain, but I think we really often give teenagers like the worst reputation. No,
1: that's probably a fair assessment. Yeah. yeah. yeah
2: OK. We, uh, well, certainly in Britain, we only focus, you, yeah. you know, you only hear about teenagers in the news if they've done something stupid, if they've you know, got someone pregnant or they're doing drugs behind the bus shelter or whatever it might be. Um, and I know that's not true from when I visit schools, uh both in the UK and in the US, and it's been proven to me this week, the number of interesting, intelligent, sensitive conversations that I've had with young people. And, uh, you know, if I'm saying all this, I, I want to point out that one thing I think it's very important that you don't do as a writer is be didactic, um, that you preach at people. I think you have to tell a story that works and is gripping and, you know, um, emotive and whatever first. Um, And I don't think it's a writer's job to tell people what to think, but I do think it can be a writer's job to tell people what to think about. And that's a slightly different matter. So in this book, yeah, I'm trying to ask some questions and suggesting these matters that young people could think about. That's a
1: good way of putting it. Um, So, I I mean, as you sort of alluded to, you you don't live in the United States. You're not American. Um, So you aren't necessarily impacted by the relationship between the United States and Mexico the way our, we are here mm. I'm just sort of curious what about that particular setting mm. made it so compelling for you okay. too
2: <laughs> so there's a massive question which I will try and answer as oh, soon yeah, as but possible it's a very
1: big question yeah. but I'm just sort of curious no it's
2: an entirely I mean it's a very fair question and um and you know it's an apparent one uh the first thing I'll say is at the moment, on the top of my Twitter timeline, I have a pinned tweet that links to a blog post in which I answer the question why Mexico is about
0: 400
2: <laughs> pages long. No, it's it's quite a long article Um, because this is a big issue. And, yeah, I'm not directly affected by this issue. You know, I do think that whether you like it or not and whether you call it globalization or internationalism, we now live in a connected world and everything that happens everywhere affects everywhere else. Sure. Eventually. And that's part of the reason why I wrote um, about uh, America and Mexico, because the real starting point for this happened where I live. And what I mean specifically by that is uh, my wife and I were moving to France two years ago. So although I'm British, we now live in France. And two years ago, we were making lots of uh, uh, journeys backwards and forwards, taking stuff out to our new place. And we were going through Calais. Um, you may I don't know how much of this made it to the American news, but the migrant camp that was developing in Calais two years ago. So there were... First, we saw dozens, then hundreds, and then literally thousands of guys mostly on the uh, highway leading up to the ferry terminal on the French side. These are North Africans, mostly sub-Saharan Africans um, and people from the Middle East. And this is what I mean about a chain of events Mm -hmm. in that, um, you know, Britain, we sell arms to Saudi Arabia. I think we're, I'm right in saying we're the second biggest exporter of arms to Saudi Arabia. We do not sell arms to Saudi Arabia when there's actually a war going on in the Middle East, because that would be wrong, wouldn't sure. it? <laughs> but the rest of the time, right. go for yeah. it. you know. And then these uh, in the Yemen last year, there was an incident, you know, lots of people killed. The bombs that did it were British. So... Then people obviously leave areas like this, and one of the places they may go is come across Europe and come up to France and try and get to the united kingdom and Then a newspaper right. like The Daily Mail will say, "How dare these people try and get into our country so that's what I mean about cause and effect and when we witnessed um at first hand these migrants in in Calais, I thought, well, yeah, I'm a writer. this could be something that I will write or one could write about sure but I also I had the kind of um you have a sort of gut instinct a sort of uh you know that you haven't quite got all the pieces of the puzzle that you're trying to write, and something was missing. And often you can't work out what it is. You just have to wait for it to fall in your lap. Yep. And it fell in my lap through a chance conversation with a young Mexican academic. Um, and talking to Gabby, I realised that it was Mexico that I needed to be writing about because I wanted to write about a situation in which two worlds are so close. Mm-hmm. El Paso Juarez. I mean, they were one city for most of their history. Now, you know, there's a border between right. them. That border has been very open and porous and friendly and cooperative, And even now it remains like that. When you spend time down there, you immediately see that that is the case. And this book about is actually what happens when you throw a fence up between a place like this and the effect that that fence has. Uh, some people, of course, will argue that it stops violent things happening. There's another line of argument that says it actually creates the violence mm-hmm. itself. Okay.
1: And people can go to your Twitter page yeah. once you read this. <laughs> more detailed version okay, yeah. um so what was your research process then like for writing the book
2: well it was quite long and um that's i'm not complaining about that because i enjoy research uh, researching books is easier than writing them and it's very easy to get carried away uh, particularly with a topic like this where you could just go on reading and researching forever basically and i did you know all the usual things reading a stack of books newspaper par- articles magazine articles, um Uh, I also had to do some more kind of um, slightly more imaginative things. Like I started following some blog posts written by people writing anonymously along the borderland. And that was because it's actually really hard to find out basic news reporting about what happens along the borderland. Because the American press doesn't particularly report on it. And the Mexican press can't report on it because they get killed if they do. Right. Um, I think, I don't know the actual number, but Mexico has one of the highest rates of um, murders of journalists in the world. And therefore, the press is basically controlled effectively um, by the narco lords. Mm-hmm. Therefore, to find out very simple things like what was ha- happening with the different cartels uh, that, that were fighting in um, the two cartels fighting in Juarez in the period I was writing about, I had to go and follow these blogs and see, you know, what people were saying. Sometimes these blogs are very interesting, written anonymously, and then you get someone jump on it, and you could see it was a gang member jumping on and just hurling abuse sure. at the, you know. Um, wow. So there was all that kind of stuff. Uh, then less um, obvious things like I found a hang gliding club in El Paso <laughs> who go out with GoPros on their oh. helmets. And before I'd managed to go to uh, Juarez, they go up on the mesa above the city and they basically fly over the, the border. Huh. Uh, so I was able to see the point I was writing about really close up, far closer than you could see you know, on a map um, by looking at their videos. And then finally I went there and spent some time going around the city with two different guides Um,
1: all right yeah that GoPro thing is that's interesting
2: (laughs) I always I think it's really fun when you think you come across something that's a really unusual way of researching a book just you know you need to find one little thing and then you find the thing that gives it to you
1: all right um so I, I feel like I have to ask about your writing process because you are a prolific writer and um publish on average a book a year roughly. Probably on average, yeah, um, yeah. Is this something you sort of plan to do? Do you say, like, I want to write a book a year? Or is it just sort of like you had these characters who were like, I need you to tell my story.
2: Yeah, so I'm laughing because in the old days, it seemed that like I was very good at lining up a book I'm working <laughs> on now And the one I'll do after that, and the one I'll do after that. And they came along in a nice regular order, (laughs) and i get one out of the way and move on to the next one. And now what's happened is I seem to be going through phases where I have writer's block for a year or two or three, and then I get three things to work on at once. It's fine. I mean, it's just what happens. And this is just the way, uh, you know, I like to do as much as I can to control the creative process. But ultimately, you know you can't it's like trying to tame a wild horse creativity is this thing that comes out of our subconscious I think the things Mm -hmm. that speak to you subconsciously before you've even been been become aware that they're affecting you Um, and so if two or three things things hit you at once all you can do is try and roll with the punches yeah yeah, pretty much yeah as much (laughs) as you can Uh,
1: so prior to uh, becoming a more serious uh, writer you worked in children's publishing yeah and I'm just wondering if that um your experiences there kind of affected how you approach writing or what you write now as a
2: yeah, writer um perhaps I mean uh, not very much, but I think one of the only things I decided and I can you know I can remember where I was when I thought this as I sat down to write my first book was for God's sake, don't be boring <laughs> um, and I think perhaps that was partially influenced by my uh because I worked in publishing but I worked in sales okay and what sales means is it makes you extremely cynical uh <laughs> because as a salesman uh for a few different companies in the UK I would go around and be trying to sell things to people and you know sometimes you're pulling a book out of your bag, and they've said no before it's even left your bag, you know metaphorically speaking um and it made you realize that everyone's got very little time short attention mm. span you have to hook people very rapidly Which, uh, you know, that's just how things are. I kind of slightly regret it because I do think there is um, a beauty in slow burn forms, too. And I try and allow that to happen in my books. But I certainly in some way think I need to get a reader involved in this book quickly. And that doesn't necessarily mean you have to go in all guns blazing. Sure. Um, But I think there has to be something. Because really, if you look at it from the other perspective, why should an author be arrogant enough to assume that someone is going to give you, you know, the 16 hours that it takes to read a book or whatever it is, uh, unless you give them something, you know, worthwhile in return.
1: No, for sure. That's a good way of putting it. Um, so you are a musician and on your website, you say you like to have music playing while you work, that you don't like writing in silence, but it has to be the right kind of music. Mm -hmm. So do you have any examples of styles or albums that go with certain projects?
2: Um, yeah, it's, it's kind of different for every book. I, I don't generally play music that has lyrics in because I don't want to be distracted right. by words unless it's something that I know so well I'm not listening to the words anymore. But I will choose music that has the same atmosphere that I'm trying to create on any given day when I'm working on any given scene. Uh, and so often I'll, I'll make up a Spotify playlist mm-hmm. or you know just bung a few albums in a folder that are going to be the ones that I'm working to um so there were lots of things for this some quite um interesting things that were mixtures of mexican stuff and dark rock stuff and um what else a few a couple of soundtracks i think um there's a composer icelandic composer called jonas jonasson and uh, he's done quite a few film scores really dark brooding oh, okay. film scores they're quite good uh entirely uh, another book that i wrote years ago set um Based on Transylvanian folklore, I, I found these albums of uh, Transylvanian klezmer oh. music that, you know, the Jewish folk music. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, just choose whatever is going to get me in the right, right kind of frame of mind.
1: Yeah. Uh, with all the writing and now touring, do you still have time to play?
2: No, I don't play anything anymore. I haven't done for a few years, sadly. I uh, play occasionally the guitar with my daughter who sings okay. when she comes to stay because she's got a beautiful voice. Uh, And she's not singing in any official group at the moment, so it's just a little chance to have a a sing-along at home.
1: Sure, that sounds like fun. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm going to, like, shift gears completely Mm -hmm. here, but I would be remiss as a Whovian to not talk about this. Okay, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So for those who are not familiar with that phrase, I'm a huge Doctor Who fan, and you were part of the 50th anniversary um, Celebration Anthology, Mm -hmm. and I'm sort of curious how that came about.
2: That was a a really crazy thing, and uh, because it happened unbelievably fast, um, it was a Christmas, I guess it must have been three years ago, four years ago, and uh, Penguin, who owned the rights to uh, Doctor Who Publishing in the UK, um, I know the editor a little bit, and she phoned me up, and it was about nine days before Christmas, and she said, We've just come up with this idea. Would you like to write a story? I said, yeah, sure. She said, you've got three days to give me a pitch. Oh, my gosh. And then you've got five days to write it. <laughs> uh, right before Christmas. Right before Christmas. <laughs> oh. And um, and the other thing I should say is that I grew up watching Doctor Who, but I hadn't watched anything past Christopher Eccleston of the yep. revamp. So um, I had some catching up to do. Sure. But then they basically, they got, uh, you know, they're trying to get 13 authors together. 12 then 13 authors together Um, and so they were kind of allotting very round like would you like to do so so I got a choice of two Okay, and I got the choice of John Pertwee and when she said that I was like okay that's fine (laughs) because I'm just old old enough to really be John Pertwee, Tom Baker Mm -hmm. Doctor Who who were the third and fourth uh incarnations and um so I, I re-watched a few old John Pertwee episodes and fortunately I had had an idea that kind of been knocking around in the back drawer of your mind mm-hmm. of a thing one day I could use this in something and then suddenly it's just that perfect example of two things coming along so I had this story about the Norse gods about Odin and so forth uh do you I don't know do you remember the um explorer Tor Haedal Norwegian explorer he made these very famous expeditions uh in the fifties and sixties, I think someone will correct me. I'm sure, <laughs> maybe seventies, in which he did things like he built a raft out of balsa wood and oh. dropped, and sailed it across the um the Pacific to prove how people might have migrated. And uh, he had this theory that all the Norse gods, Odin and co, all came from uh, down around uh, the Black Sea area, mm-hmm. sort of um, you know in ex um, that part of uh, the Russian corridor, and that they had moved up through there in history into Scandinavia and then they were just like legendary heroes who then became gods Uh, and he could never quite prove this but there is some good circumstantial evidence this is Hmm. true and I always one of my big big loves in history is things where something that we know was a real event or a real person gets turned into magic or myth or religion and sometimes that process can be unbelievably short and just to bring it briefly back to Saint Death, um, Saint Death is based on this new emerging worship of this folk saint called Santa Muerte. And there is another saint, a new saint that they worship in Mexico, who's a man called Jesus Malverde. And he was a bandit in the early 20th century, you know, uh, just a guy roaming around as a bandit. He's now revered as a saint. And I love huh. that fact, just in that short space yeah. of time, you see like real life become like something magical and more.
1: Absolutely. So, yeah. yeah. Did you have, I feel like if I was in an anthology along with authors like Neil Gaiman, I'd probably kind of freak out a little bit. <laughs> throwing I, that out there. Yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I, I know. I uh, I just work by ignoring. Every, as, I, I'm kind of, head, I'm humming and harming because I'm kind of lying here. You have to simultaneously <laughs> ignore what you're doing and everything else around it. Right. And focus really hard on what you're doing and everything right. around it. And right. it sounds paradoxical, but you can do it. So yeah, I'm aware that you know Doctor Who is a massive thing, Um, even more so now than it was Mm -hmm. when I was a kid because of you know the internet, social media, etc. And I was I wasn't scared of Neil Gaiman; (laughs) I was scared of the Hoovians, is what i saying. well. That's fair.
1: That is fair. All right. All right. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, Yeah, that's true so um before we actually started the interview you were talking about your experiences in libraries growing mm-hmm. up and yeah. we're sitting in a library overdrive as a library company would you mind just sharing that for our listeners again
2: yeah i kind of feel that libraries saved my life and i mean that almost literally <laughs> because um i went to an all-boys school uh that was basically like going to school in victorian britain effectively because uh, although it was a good school it was very rough and um Aggressive place to be. And so I chose all these options of ways of kind of ducking out of break times and lunch times. So the first thing I did was become a school librarian. Mm-hmm. I also ran the school bookshop. We amazingly enough had a little bookshop in the school um, as a way just of getting away from, you know, the uh, less pleasant members of the society and uh but you know i already had this love of books so it was a win-win for me and the other thing at the end of every school day we had quite a long wait before our bus home uh arrived and so i'd go to the public library in town and there again to hide from the kids from the other school in town who would also have beaten me up um so i spent uh you know an hour and a half at least every day roaming around library stacks and what i've come to realize more recently is that that was an incredibly wonderful experience because to just be set free in a library and the librarian, you know, they're busy doing their thing and checking mm-hmm. books out for, you know, the OAPs who are that's old age pensions. I don't <laughs> know if that's an American term, um, you know, and they're doing their thing. And these, we, you know, it was my brother and I and a friend and we just just look at any book we liked in any section. We would barely spend any time in the children's section. We would just be out looking at books about magic or science or history or war. And I've come to realise over the years what an incredibly helpful formative experience that was in just giving you the sense that anything is potentially of interest to you and that anything could be, in my case, the starting point for a book or the starting point for an interest or a hobby or a passion in life.
1: So at the end of um, all of our episodes, we have something that we call the Nerd Nine. Oh. They're sort of rapid fire, but not really. Okay. Just don't think too hard about now the answers. <laughs> no, they're not scary, I promise. Um, what's the last book you finished reading?
2: It was my birthday two weeks ago. And my daughter, who was studying psychology at university, gave me a book called The Psychopath Test. <laughs> I was like, are you trying to tell me something? <laughs> Thanks. Oh, um, Fantastic book, though. Very All interesting. Right. Non-fiction book. Right. Yeah. OK.
1: Um, your favourite place to read?
2: Uh, the Bath. Do
1: you have a guilty pleasure?
2: Uh, I don't believe there are guilty pleasures. I think there are just pleasures.
1: That's a good answer. Yeah. Uh, one place you'd like to travel to that you haven't been to yet? Oh, my
2: God. Oh, that's a very hard <laughs> question. Uh, I don't know. I guess I've never been to Vienna Okay. I would like to go to Vienna because of, just because it's a beautiful city, but also because it's connection with the birth of psychoanalysis, Freud oh, and Jung. And, it's true. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting things that happened in Vienna a century ago. Okay.
1: Do you have a favorite holiday like Christmas? or?
2: Uh, I kind of love them all. I really, I'm British, as you quite rightly spotted. Uh, my wife is American. Okay. And one of the lovely things since we met is... I didn't really get Thanksgiving, and oh. now I get to have Thanksgiving. Okay. And it's her favorite festival, and now I know why. Because, she said, because there's no presents or commercialism. It's just family and a meal and friendships. That's so, true. Yeah,
1: okay. Um, Are you a coffee or a tea drinker?
2: I'm tea. Uh, <laughs> sad, rather sadly for a writer, because uh, you're supposed to drink coffee as a writer. But you're you? British,
1: so. Yeah, that's
2: true. <laughs> But most, all writers in Britain are always talking about how much coffee they drink, but it makes me ill, <laughs> so I don't drink coffee anymore. But,
1: Cats or dogs? Uh, dogs. Favourite food?
2: Oh, these questions. I know. I think it'd probably be a thing called tartiflette. Okay. Which is mountain food up in the French Alps, and it's basically a mixture of potato, onion, bacon, and an awful lot of melted cheese. That sounds really good, yeah, actually. it's
0: yeah. fantastic.
1: Okay. Yeah. So you could have dinner with one person, dead or alive. Who would you pick?
2: Uh, I would have dinner with Slavoj Shishek, the everyone's favorite Freudian Marxist psychoanalytical <laughs> philosopher <laughs> film buff, uh, just because it'd be interesting to see if he could actually eat anything in between talking. So.
1: <laughs> so finally, what would you hope readers take away from reading St. Death?
2: Well, I guess um, I think my view on this is I think uh, hopefully a book can offer different things to different people. And it's kind of up to people to see what they can take away from it. Um, But I guess what I'm trying to do with all my books is encourage people to think about things that they might not yet have thought about. Um, As I said at the start, it's not my job to tell people how to think. But I just want to put things before them and say, you know, look at this. What do you think? As I said, it's not my job to tell them.
1: All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. My
2: pleasure. Thank you so much.
1: Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can add these titles to their collections and marketplace.
0: Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands.